This is episode 7 of IQS Tech Factory talk series. In this episode, we talk to Amnon Levap, co-founder and CIO, Chief Innovation Officer at SIT Innovation. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of IQS Tech Factory Talk Series. Actually, this is the first episode after the summer break. It took us a while to put things together, but uh, we are back. So thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Oriol Pascual. I'm the managing director of IQS Tech Factory. We are basically a hub for industrial innovation and entrepreneurship located in Barcelona. And what we do from IQS Tech Factory is to help build the next generation of industrial companies. And how do we do this? Well, basically we do it in three ways. We run an acceleration program where we support hardware startups, startups that have already a functional prototype, and we help them go from a prototype to a first industrial series. Keep, uh, keep your eyes open because actually the new cohort is going to be presented, introduced next week. We got the next 10 uh, high-tech startups selected for, for our cohort. And as usual, there is a variety of industries represented from medical devices to some consumer products and also some robotics um, and some industrial applications. So keep your eyes open. The second thing we do is we run an annual event where we show high technologies and we show industrial startups and we call this IQS Tech Fest. You should check iqstechfest.com, 2021st of January 2020, next edition. And we are going to have actually Israel as a guest country. And today, our guest in the talk series is from Israel. So it's going to help us get into the mood. And finally, what we do is that we run a community of heads of innovation at large industrial companies that are looking for innovation. And we help them connect with startups. So... Why do we do this? Why are we running this talk series? Well, one of our aims as a hub for industrial innovation is to tell the world how relevant it is to invest in creating value valid companies and industrial companies. So we thought that the best way to do that is to engage with those that are uh, helping it uh, happen. So we organize a series of conversations with different uh, industrial leaders from investors to heads of innovation to uh, consultants to entrepreneurs themselves. Um, so we can have a conversation about the relevance of industrial innovation and entrepreneurship. Before we start and before we go to our guests, I would like once again to uh, thank the whole team at IQS Tech Factory and Barter for helping us uh, make this happen. So there is uh, uh, quite some people behind uh, running the, 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 the whole project. So thank you very much for helping us. And also I would like to remind you, we changed a bit the system. Um, now this is running through YouTube and you are also present uh, in our website. You can send your questions, either if it's in YouTube themselves, you can leave a comment and we're going to receive that as a question. If it's in social media, please use the hashtag TalkSeriesIQSTF. TalkSeriesIQSTF. So, and with that, I would like to, to introduce you to our guest today. And our guest is uh, Amnon Lebaf. Amnon is the co-founder and CIO, the Chief Innovation Officer at SIT Innovation, SIT. And we will talk later on what SIT stands for. This is a Tel, Tel Aviv-based consulting firm that in the 25 years of existence uh, has built a, a customer base of over 1,400 companies. And, and their clients, they are in more than 70 countries worldwide. So they definitely have a good understanding of how corporations and companies of all sizes uh, manage and deal with innovation. Amnon studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Um, and you will see that he's a very curious person. So he studied a, a diverse a range of subjects, running from mathematics to philosophy uh, to cognitive psychology and linguistics. And even his professional career is, is quite uh, uh, colorful, I have to say. So 
He's been working as a garage mechanic, as a construction worker, a room service waiter, and a social worker. And, and actually, the latest is something he's very proud of, of his work as a social worker. Lots of learnings from there. And also, I will be very curious later on to, to learn how he went from this range of professions to work in innovation. Uh, so today we are glad to have uh, Amnon with us and we're going to talk about innovation, about corporates about and, and also about Israel as a startup nation. So Amnon, welcome to IQS uh, Tech Factory Tall Series. Thank you, Oriol. <clears throat> happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we are happy to make it this, this happen. This, um, those are turbulent times. Everyone is uh, dealing, dealing, dealing with it. Also, we know that right now in Israel, things are getting a bit easier, but it's been quite tough in the last weeks uh, with the whole COVID pandemic. Sure. So thanks for having time to, to be with us today. Thank you. Thank so you. actually, I'm not, I would like to start, uh, you know how this works. This is a conversation, it's an open conversation, but uh, I like to start talking a little bit about you. And, and, and when I was checking your profile and your background, wow, I realized that it seems that you like exploration. I mean, you studied a variety of subjects, you work in a variety of fields. And I wondered if this uh, exploration, this interest, is this something that... that it's organic, it's, it just happened that you were jumping from one thing to another, or there was some intention behind that? Is this curiosity planned? Okay, so it's true that I'm a curious person. I still am a curious person, even though I've been in SAT for 25 years, because luckily this is the job I, it's not, I didn't really find the job, I created the job that allows me to move from one subject to the other and expand my knowledge, etc. But uh, it's not that I set out and I decided I want to be curious, I want to explore. It just, I decided early on that, first of all, when I said everyone does an army, most people, I decided I'm never again, I'm going to be in a situation where I'm counting the minutes until something will end that I'm doing. I said, it's the worst thing you can do in life is uh, waste it and wait for the time to pass. So I said, when I see something interesting, I'll grab it. And that was my policy. By the way, in the university, I studied, as you said, all of these subjects, mathematics, uh, philosophy, linguistics, cognitive psychology. In all of them, I studied seriously. I did everything that the university demanded, but I always left before I got a diploma. I had this uh, young person's idea that it would be nice to go through without a diploma. Uh, but I, I understood that if I want to learn mathematics, I need to do it seriously. If I want to do philosophy, I need to do it seriously. And, and I did. And then I just decided that I'll look at life. And when I see an interesting opportunity, I'll just grab it and go with it and see what happens. And that's and, how it worked. And, and why the mix of subjects? How mathematics, philosophy, how is this going? Well, I think that is something that I realized, and then SIT kind of brought it all together. I realized common thread is I'm fascinated how I think and how people think and what happens in our minds and with life, not only with our minds, with our spirit. Um, so that's the common thread, because if you think about it, mathematics, you know, uh, there's a saying that, I forgot who said it, but maybe Galileo, that mathematics is the language in which the world, uh, the rules of the world were written. And philosophy obviously deals with this, but linguistics has a lot to do with it because how we speak and how we understand what others say influences very much the structure of our thinking. So all of this kind of comes together. And it also comes together with, I'm very fascinated with education. So actually, while we were founding SIT, I was working in an institute in Israel that's dedicated to the development of thinking in the Israeli educational system. So that will maybe tie in also with what we'll talk about later about the so-called uh, startup nation. <clears throat> but I was fascinated by the opportunity to work with children and work with children's teachers and see if we can affect the way that you teach children to not just learn any old thing, but to think about what they're learning and to be aware of how they think, etc. So all of it kind well, of ties together. 
this is opening a quite quite a subject i think as usual there is a kind of a structure to these kind of conversations and then the conversation goes somewhere else but i think in the times we are right now, if there is an industry that is ready for disruption, is education, or especially you will say is is high high end sure. education. Actually, I'm curious to to hear what's your point of view okay. on that. Well, uh, I've luckily and also a little bit by design, I've been involved in quite a few projects on education within SIT or a company about the daughter company that's called SIT Four. Four, as in the, you know, there's a, the three, there's academy, uh, government, business, and this is, uh, sorry, government, business, and uh, NGOs. And the fourth category is uh, social businesses. So we created a social business within SIT, which we say we do social um, work through innovation. And uh, there we do a lot of education work. So, for example, I was had the kind of the opportunity to facilitate a project for the municipality of Jerusalem to design its future st strategy of education. And it's really fascinating because Jerusalem, you have about, I think, more or like 30% Arabs, Palestinians, and then 40% religious Jews, and maybe 30 or 40% non-religious Jews or different. So it's actually three intertwined educational systems and it's really fascinating to think, what does it mean, innovation or innovative thinking for an Orthodox Jew, or for a Palestinian, or for an Israeli and non-religious uh, Israeli? And how do you try to create a system that encourages everyone to be innovative? It's one of the, the key elements of the strategy is be preparing students for a world where you need to innovate constantly. So how do you do that within all these limitations and structures of the different cultures? And, and yes, I believe that the, the place where we change the world, obviously, is education. So when you get to someone in a corporate position with 40 years and you see that how difficult it is for them to change the way they're thinking, to be open to ideas, it all starts there. It starts at home with their parents, but more than anything, it starts in the educational system that uh, created our modes of thinking and what we in SAT call the fixedness, the cognitive fixedness. I think we are going to have time to talk about that because at the core of the SAT method is a change of mindset or it's preparing your mindset in order to... It's not so much about how do we innovate in the sense of tools for innovation, but how do you get ready to have the right mindset to, to, to do that? Yes. Although what we believe is that mindset is not such a fluffy concept as some people think. Actually, you need tools in order to change your mindset. So uh, what we create is, is a system that tackles your mindset through the use of very practical tools. And uh, the mindset it is you know if we think about what is innovation we define innovation we say innovation is the ability to think and act differently to achieve your goals so it's your goals so if you think about it there's think in it which sounds obvious but it's not obvious because how many of us really have the opportunity to stop and think obviously we think in an automatic way many people make many decisions every day so they're thinking but think in terms of really reflecting stopping what you're doing raising your head and reflecting not so common and then think and act because it's not about mindset something theoretical thinking about theories it's how you convert your thought into action which makes it interesting and then and we can talk a lot about what it means to think differently because, you know, if the chair was and you move it a 45 degree angle, you're doing something different. But does this count as different? So we have a very structured way of understanding what we mean when we say thinking differently. And last but not least, maybe first is to achieve your goals. Because in the context that we're talking about, innovating or changing your mindset because you want to do it you're doing it because this will help you to achieve your goals that's it, it's good that we set up the basis here 
that with this definition of what is innovation and 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 what does it mean or how do you see what what does it mean in fact going back a little to your trajectory i will be curious on how how did you start working in the field of innovation so what was the first innovation related activity that you were into because okay i can see a jump between working as a as a, a garage worker or in construction worker and then working innovation so how did all this started in the garage i worked in the garage because in the army i was in the tanks so i for the first time in my life i saw nuts and bolts and how some mechanism works and i said now all my life i'm going to have cars and i'm going to so i want to understand how this works and to train myself to do something that i was really bad at and i think that's one of the things that always drew me to do things that i felt i'm not so good at so for example i I went to work in construction because physically I'm not a very strong person naturally. So I said, I'll work in construction. I'll learn to become stronger, to be able to do physical work better. And I went to mechanics and to garage because I wanted to understand how this, you know, I, I had friends who had really golden hands, as we say in Hebrew. And I'm totally not that kind of person. And uh, when I was working in the garage, there was a mechanic who had maybe seven years of study in his life really intelligent guy but he never studied uh, but he was really sharp and really a good mechanic and he always taught me so after a while I told him Mayor, what do you say do I have better hands now and he said to be a good mechanic you don't need better hands you need the brain so use the brain that you have and forget about the hands so this thing that whatever you do there's a way of thinking that allows you to do it well I think that's a, a common thread and then when I went to be a social worker, I, went, I worked with what's maybe called, it's not nice to say, juvenile delinquents. Right? The kids I would work with were from, let's say, 10 to 20 years old. They were in the streets. They had no job. They were kicked out of school. Many had problems with the police. And my job, I had this area, this neighborhood, which is considered a problematic socioeconomic neighborhood. And it was my job to deal with these kids. So I spent like 15 hours a day walking the streets of this neighborhood and I had to figure out how do I talk to them? How do I get into their minds? How do I understand how they're thinking? Because otherwise I couldn't do the work with them. So actually, it's interesting that there's a common thread. If you think about things from the point of view of what goes on in people's minds, then you understand it. And that's where I, I learned, for example, not to be afraid of people. So it's funny when you stand in front of a president of some corporation and, you know, people get stressed. But in the end, it's people. So one guy is a drug dealer, so he's he can harm you by hitting you in the head. And one guy is a president, so he can harm you by taking away your project. But it's people. And then when, when you get this realization that we all... I, I remember when we started with SAT, one of my first learnings was, it's amazing how similar people are and also how different at the same time. So what we're trying to do in SAT is identify the patterns that are common to everyone's thinking and use that as a basis and then adapt it to the different cultures. You know, you said 74 countries, so cultures and corporate cultures and a corporation and a startup. In the end, the CEO of a startup and the CEO of a corporation, they have hugely different strategies in context, but they also have very similar thought patterns that are just applied in different contexts. So I feel that this, this I, I bring to bear all of this in my work and in my life. And uh, also very difficult here to, to say where work ends and life starts. And, uh, you know, well, it is difficult though. And I like you're touching on this on this point because I always thought that it's important to to put yourself in the shoes of the other, you know? I mean, for me, mm -hmm. you're talking about realizations and, and of course we can make it a bit personal, but for me, a big realization was when I was 15 years of age. And until this point, I was going to school in my neighborhood. So, so my social surrounding was almost everyone was the same, thinking the same with the same kind of, uh, you know, mental uh, framework. And then at that time, I went to a summer camp organized by the local government. 
And in that summer camp, there was people of all sorts of places, all sorts of conditions and, and coming with all sorts of backgrounds. And it was a huge realization to realize that, hey, actually the world is way wider and bigger than I anticipated. You know, there are other ways to look to the world. And, and that leads also to the fact of understanding, hey, it's important to understand that not everyone is looking at the world to the same lens that you're looking. And, um, and if you take this into account constantly, well, that, that helps uh, uh, make things smoother and also to come sure. to agreements and also to understand why things are the way sure. they, that they are. Right. So, by the way, uh, my professional uh, meeting with this realization that you were mentioning uh, in SIT, uh, you actually asked how we started SIT and how we, I started being involved in innovation and I I'll, can I'll go back to it, but jumping a bit forward, the first area where we applied SIT practically when was in the world of advertising. It was kind of a coincidence that a, a guy who had owned an advertising agency in Israel heard about us, read it, and, and uh, I'll tell it in a moment. But anyway, we started working with advertising agencies. And in advertising, the whole point is you need to get into the mind of your audience. So you need to craft your message. So we started developing an entire methodology that helps advertising agencies and also marketing departments later in operations. First of all, understand what you want to say and then how you want to barriers and reasons why it's so hard for people to get messages. Again, we apply this thinking differently and the patterns from SAT that we can talk about later if we have time. And we apply them into the context of advertising, trying to get into the minds audiences. First of all, understand your audience, how they're currently thinking, and then how you can affect the way that they're currently thinking. But if you want, I can go back and answer your question from before. I'll, I'll, I'll be interested. Uh, from your side, we have a little uh, connectivity issues, very, very minor. It's not really um, bothering or interrupting the message, but, but every now and then there's a little bit okay. of connectivity issues. But uh, very interesting to understand that actually the, the beginning of the SIT methodology, this uh, systematic innovative thinking, that's, that's what SIT stands for, um, it's born out of working with clients in the field of marketing. I think that's, that's quite interesting. So, so tell us a little bit what does SIT stand for and what are the basic principles of that methodology uh, that you develop and it's been working so well over the years? Sure. So what happened actually was I was an editor of a business um, a management journal. And I came upon two academics who were working in Tel Aviv, and they were developing the thoughts of a Russian engineer called Genrich Altschuler, who had developed a methodology called TRIZ, T-R-I-Z. And it was a methodology for solving technological problems by engineers. And I was looking for interesting material for our journal and I found this and I said to them why don't we try to take these same principles that are used to solve technological problems by engineers and see if they can be adapted to other areas other domains that are not engineering and let's write an article about it for my managers so we wrote two articles and then the, this head of an advertising agency said hey guys if you have a method to automatically or systematically invent ideas my creative department, they need to invent ideas every day for campaigns, for ads. Maybe you can apply it to that. So we took the basic principle from Altschuler, this Russian engineer. And his very basic principle is that when you look at two innovative ideas, for example, give me an, something you saw lately that you think was innovative or that was a cool idea. Um, Something that I saw this innovative. Well, let's say the electric cars. I got okay. uh, I yeah. got to try so, those lately and I'm I'm very big fan okay. right now. Great. So when you look at electric cars and when you look at contact lenses, for example, that I see you're not using now, but it's really an, it was an innovation when it was invented. So you don't start ask yourself what does an electric car have in common with 
contact lenses. You're actually focusing on what's special about electric cars and what's special about contact lenses. But Altschuler said, no, let's look at what all kinds of different ideas have in common. And he identified initially 29 common patterns, which we reduced to five. So, for example, we say that moving from a regular car to an electric car, in a sense, mentally, it's very similar to moving from glasses to contact lenses. Why? Because in both cases, you took a product that's working well and it's established and it's known and people use it like a car or eyeglasses. And you took away a component that seems to be essential. In one case, you took away all the frame holding the lenses in place. In the other, you took away the engine, the basic internal combustion engine, which makes the car move. And then this, what we call subtraction, opened the door to think of an alternative model of of, uh, motor on one hand, or just say, wow, who says lenses need uh, support? Maybe the, the eye can be the support. So what... The basic, basic principle of Altschuler was this. Let's find common patterns across innovations. Once we identify these common patterns, we can convert them into tools that will allow us use these tools and create the new ones. So when this guy came from the advertising agency, what we did, we took thousands of winners of the Cannes Festival in advertising, not the film festival, the the Cannes Advertising Festival, and we analyzed them, and we found that there are about two six patterns. And now, if you take just regular ads from the newspaper and you look for our patterns, you'll find that maybe 20% of the cases. If you look at winners of Cannes Festival, 90%, sometimes 85%, sometimes 90%, sometimes 95% of win- winners follow our patterns. So what that means, our next step, I wrote a fax at the time, not even an email, to two guys in what was considered at the time the best ad agency in the world in London. It was called, uh, it's still called Abbott Med Med Vickers, belongs now to the BBDO network. And I said to them, listen, we analyzed your award-winning ads. This pair of creatives were the stars. And we think we found some patterns and we're really curious to to understand how you work. And so we reached out and basically what we did, we analyzed how people invent, not how people, what people invent following Altschuler, but we left the technological sphere and we identified these patterns and we we identified five patterns. And then around that, we started to build a methodology. So today we have, uh, an entire model uh, of rings that in the core there's these initial five patterns and then we created an additional 10, 15 tools and then we understood there were some basic thinking principles. We met this concept that was first named by a Swiss sociologist or a social scientist about 100 years ago, a guy called Carl Dunker. And he did some experiments and he identified what he called functional fixedness. This is really interesting. It's the the tendency to use certain things for a limited type of function. And it can be demonstrated. It's very uh, interesting phenomenon. And we said, okay, that's really interesting. And there's been 100 years of study about functional fixedness. Let's see if there are other types of fixedness. So we actually identified three additional types of fixedness. And then we, we said, okay, so we have tools and we have fixedness. So let's see if our tools can help break the fixedness. And that's what we started to do. But immediately, <clears throat> sorry, we realized that in a corporation, you have fixedness at the individual level. So each person lives with their fixedness. Now, it's really important to emphasize that fixedness is not stupidity. On the contrary, you can be a brilliant engineer. You're doing your job really, really well. But you have, like every human being, cognitive fixedness, the tendency to think in certain paths and certain patterns, which makes it difficult for you to change them. And paradoxically, actually, the more successful you are, the stronger you are 
your fixedness becomes because what's happening when you succeed, so to speak, life is confirming to you that, great, the way you're thinking works really well. So the most chances are that the president of the company is more fixed than the vice president who is more fixed than the director, et cetera, et cetera. So when I say it to management, some people don't necessarily like it. Some people don't invite me to come back, but it's true. It still doesn't mean that the president isn't the smartest guy in the company and he's not leading the company well. He is. Just says that for a president to change his way of thinking is more challenging than for a director or for someone further down the organization. So we focused a lot of our work. Sorry, I'll finish the sentence and you can say on this individual fixedness, but we realized that there are other three levels of fixedness that we need to deal with if we want to help a corporation become more innovative. So actually, no, that leads to the question, I think it makes lots of sense. Eh? And, and, and it goes back to this idea of looking to the world through certain lens. And are you willing to change the, the lens in front of you? Eh? And, and, mm -hmm. and what are the, the bias that you may have in order to keep with that lens, eh? especially if you're in successful positions or some power positions because that reinforces. But no, the question will be more, um, so what are corporates or what are clients uh, looking for when they come and they knock your door? Because at the end of the day, within the field of innovation, yes, there are many services and many approaches and some they are very playful and it can be about having a good time and so on. But the kind of approach that you propose as, as IT is a, is a hard one to swallow because it's really about sure. changing mindset, which at the end means also about changing the way you work. I mean, you cannot get into that kind of approach on a mild, uh, mildly, or you cannot get in, um, in a, in a, in a playful way if you want. So, so what is it that your clients, your corporations are looking for when they knock the door and, and between what they, they say that they want to achieve and they want really want to achieve what's, is there a difference really? Okay. It's a very good point. So first of all, I want to refer back to my definition from half an hour ago that innovation for us is thinking and acting differently to achieve your goals. So we're not coming there to play around. We see innovation as a means to an end. We're not doing innovation in order to be more innovative. We're doing innovation in order to achieve the goals. So actually, we're not doing innovations. We even have a sentence that says, don't do innovation, rather, innovate in what you do. So when a company brings us in, it's not to do innovation. Maybe they, that's what they ask us, but we say, no, guys, we're not here to do innovation. We're here to help you innovate in what you do. So it's very interesting how this evolved with time because when we started working 25 years ago, there was, as to the best of my knowledge, there was no person in the world who had the title innovation manager. Actually, the first time I heard this title was with a small client of ours, a startup in the north of the country, with an amazing CEO. He told me, look, I'm take, taking my, my marketing VP, and I'm telling him that half his time, he's going to be the innovation manager of the company. That was in 95 or 96. At the time, we, we were not aware of anyone in the world with that title. Maybe there was, you know, the internet was only starting, so maybe there wasn't, we weren't aware. But for us, he was the first time we ever heard this title. Companies were talking, they didn't talk so much of innovation. They said, come and help us develop the next generation of new products. Come and help us solve and be more creative about solving our problems, etc. So very often companies come to us because they have some specific tasks. So for example, now I'm working with a company in the US that they're trying to rethink their strategy about a certain product, but so they've worked already with strategy consultants. We're not strategy consultants, but the, what they felt is that what they need now is not a SWOT analysis, etc. What they need now is someone to help them break the way they've always thought about this and then find. So we're working them, with them for the past like, about three months and we're going to report in two months together with them. Several 
areas or directions they hadn't thought about before or some directions they had thought about before, but here's a totally new way of thinking about them. So many companies come to us because they have a specific goal in mind and they understand that the regular way of thinking about it will not work for them. But what has changed dramatically in these 25 years that today most companies have innovation managers and innovation units, etc., especially the large corporations, but even smaller ones as well. So very often today, companies come to us because they say, help us organize our innovation strategy. Or maybe they're already inside the innovation strategy, but they're feeling that it's not working well enough or it could be accelerated. So today, a lot of our work has to do with how we help companies become more innovative under the assumption that if they become more innovative, this will help them achieve their regular business goals, etc. And when I talked before about fixedness on an individual level and the fact that it's not stupidity, etc., we discovered very early on that this is the individual level, but above it, there's the team level. Things very rarely today happen to individuals in a corporation. You work with a team. So even if you put five people together in a room and each one of them knows how to break her or his fixedness, as a team, they will create team fixedness and we need to help them break that. And when the team has overcome the team fixedness, they will go out into the organization with what they found or what they invented and their fixedness of the organization will start weighing in and making life difficult for them. So we need to work with our organization on the structures of how do they deal with what's coming up in the organization? And then, actually, in the past three years, we even realized, and we can go back to it when we talk about the startup nation, that even when you solve the individual team and organizational level, there's another level above it, which is the ecosystem. Very often, innovations are killed because of the ecosystem, the regulator, the competitor, the clients. So... How do we as an organization, as a corporation, affect our ecosystem, influence our ecosystem to help us make uh, our innovation be viable out there in the world? So it's, There are so many things coming out of that intervention you just have. And, and I don't know which one to, to pick. Well, what I would like to do is to, because uh, I would like to bring a question from the audience and, sure. and actually remind everyone that they can send the, your, their questions through the comments section. And actually, Maite is asking, how can innovation be measured? And, and this is like a, a golden question okay. that it's been like yes. something we still it's, have to crack. Some people is trying to true. crack it, but... How can you measure innovation? What are the KPIs you can use internally, especially yeah. if you're an innovation manager of someone to show internally that there is progress? So, so how, how do you do that at sure. SIT? Sure. It's really a crucial question, golden question, as you said, because, you know, when, when you work with a small company, so the manager or the management, they just feel that things are happening well or not well. Or so... They know what's going on, more or less. When you work with a corporation, for example, we have companies we've been working with for 7, 10, 12, 14 years. So how do they know they're not wasting their time and money working with us? And it's not just with us. Today, when we work with a corporation, very often they're working with other experts on innovation. And even, you know, leave aside the money they're paying us is really small change versus the resources they're spending internally, the hundreds and thousands of days of their people's time, management time, etc. So you must measure it because otherwise you don't know whether and where you're to put your efforts. So it's a crucial question. And for years, we've been helping companies to measure innovation and to find to define their innovation indicators. And it's very complex. It's, I can't tell you we have the perfect full solution, but I can give a few thoughts about it. First of all, if you think, for example, that you're putting in a training program for, we like very much to train innovation coaches. We have companies where we've trained hundreds, literally hundreds of innovation coaches in many countries, and we create networks of innovation coaches who do the work in the day-to-day. So now you want to know 
if it's worthwhile because it's a huge investment of time and resources and everything. So now imagine kind of a line or a scale. On one hand, we can say, look, if you say that innovation is in order to achieve your goals, why do you need to measure innovation? Just measure how well you're achieving your goals. If you're applying innovation, if you're teaching people innovation skills, hopefully the, the regular business goals of the company are improving. If not, you're wasting your time. So you already have the goals in place. Market share, profitability, revenue, blah, 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 whatever you want, you're measuring. So there's this idea. Obviously, it has all kinds of uh, disadvantages, but the two key disadvantages, first of all, is time. Obviously, even the most optimistic and uh, hurried managers understand that if I'm training uh, 20 innovation coaches today, you won't see a change in the revenues of the company in a month or half a year or maybe a year, maybe. So there's this time lapse. You don't want to wait all this time. Secondly, there's all the other intervening factors. So revenues didn't grow, but the world changed. COVID happened. So now maybe thanks to the innovation, we're not losing 40% market share, only losing 20% market share. So that's one extreme. The other extreme, you say, listen, you never know. You don't know. There's all the intervening factors. The only thing I can measure is the inputs. I had a goal of training 200 people this year? Did I train 200 people this year? Are they happy with the training? Did we complete the training as planned, etc.? The big advantage of this, you know what you're measuring. It's easily measurable. You know why you're measuring it. But of course, maybe you're doing all of this excellent, but it's not helping you in any way. So if you think of these two extremes, which obviously neither of them is the right one, what we say is not the middle, no. We say... KPIs and measurement have to be dynamic. You have to start from here, from the inputs. At the beginning, don't ask yourself anything about results. If you will, you will kill. I just invent, invented this rhyme now. <laughs> but uh, a CTO of a, a client once told me, our management, they're so interested in innovation that every time we plant seed, every day they take out the plant to see how well the the roots are growing. So obviously you kill it. So we say at the beginning, you know, uh, you have the temptation, resist the temptation to measure results at the beginning because you just demotivate everyone. Just measure the inputs. Then for example, let's say you train 20 innovation coaches and you train them to have what we call mini sessions conduct sessions about innovation with small teams. So now give yourself a goal. For example, each innovation coach needs to do two mini sessions per month. So start measuring how many mini sessions they do per month. And be, be there and see there are four in, uh, that have done eight, great, but there are four that have done zero. So are they total loss? Did I select the wrong people? Or can I still save them and put them back on track? Okay. Now, after a while, you say, okay, great. Everyone's doing sessions, but maybe they're cracking jokes and wasting their time in the sessions. So let's find an indicator for the productivity of a session. So the first and easiest to see is how many ideas came out of it. Okay. So now we can give ourselves an indicator how many... But we didn't do that in the first month. If we would have done that in the first month, we would have probably killed, de demotivated everyone. But now that they're on track on doing the sessions, I can maybe delicately add this counting of ideas. But then I say to myself, okay, so these guys came up with 16 ideas, but they're all stupid ideas. So who cares? Okay, so I cared because <laughs> it meant that they're being active and energetic. But now in the next step, I want to care about something further on. So I want to see, for example, how much of the ideas that are coming out from the coaches' sessions are going into our development pipeline, okay? So I can continue with this, but I think you got kind of the general feel of how we build these, we call them dynamic KPIs or dynamic indicators. And this, you need to be on top of it all the time. And also, 
It's confusing because it means that different parts of the organizations will be measuring different things at the same time, which makes it more complex. But if you don't do that, you're very often your measurement will kill it, a quantum effect. Your measurement will kill the cat in the fridge, okay? So you have to be really, and then there's a the question, what's considered innovation? For example, many companies have innovation competitions. They're very often they are disastrous in their effects. They're really, they, they're totally anti-innovation. You take a, a huge number of people who think they're being innovative, you give prizes to a really small number of people, you give the message to most people that what they did isn't worth a lot. That's just one of the types of problems with innovation competitions. So, but when we help companies structure innovation competitions properly, one of the things we help them do is let's uh, define criteria for what is innovative for us. Because remember, if you think and act differently to achieve your goals. So we say, so let's quantify differently and let's quantify what it means to achieve your goals. And the combination of these two quantifications can give you a measure of what's the value of what's being produced by anyone who's dealing with innovation in the organization, for example. I think that makes so much sense. I like a lot this idea of dynamic KPIs and, and in early stages, basically measure inputs, not outputs. And then as you evolve, uh, you, may, you may change. That makes so much sense. And um, I'm afraid I had such a list of uh, items I wanted to touch up uh, with you. Um, and probably we'll have to leave some things for, for later on. We still have some time, but, sure. uh, but uh, I think there are so many interesting things coming out, especially because you mentioned there are two things I would like to touch upon. And we have quite some questions about the, 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 the startup nation of Israel, if you want, or sure. how come Israel. There are quite some questions about that, but very quick question or, or quick question and quick answer about you mentioned the pandemic, you mentioned COVID. How do you see these affecting innovation units? Well, that's a whole, uh, you know, two-hour uh, talk uh, subject, but... It has I to think, be short. Yes, I think it's... Look, first of all, it's fascinating because, you know, COVID is a fascinating phenomenon. It's also tragic. I myself had the corona, as you know, and we had to postpone this conversation. So... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Inspired by Donald Trump, I'm already well now, and, uh, uh, and of course I believe in everything he says. The opposite, but in this case, I, I, I also I also recovered. Um, so I, I felt also, luckily not horribly, but how tragic it is. But still, it's amazing how useful this COVID experience is for innovation. Because basically what has happened, we've taken all of us, all of us who just in January were saying this can't be possible and this can't be true and this we can't do remotely and this we need this and, and, and suddenly reality, you remember I mentioned the subtraction that are, you have in common in the contact lenses in the electric car. So COVID gave us a whole bunch of huge subtractions and taught us that you can run a team without meeting the people. You can uh, run a workshop without being in the same room. You can manage projects remotely. You can do so many things that you didn't think you could do before. You can maintain a hotel business without any tourists. How? You found 70 different ways to do it. So the, the innovative message of COVID is mind-boggling. I mean, who in the world will be able to tell you in a determined voice from now on, no, this is impossible? It's ridiculous to say the words, this is impossible post-COVID. So in the past five months, we've been doing a lot of work with companies. And I wrote kind of a, a document on, I called it initially the post-COVID world. And then I changed the name to the, the COVID world because I realized it's a big mistake to think, ah, now we're in COVID and there will be a post-COVID. There won't be post-COVID. There will be a world, world shaped by COVID. And when there's not going to be a date where people will say it's over, mission accomplished, you know. No. So now what we do with companies, we say, 
look at what ha- what's happening. I like to talk about vectors because people like to talk about trends, but trend is something that's already well established in a certain direction. And I think what's happening in COVID, there are forces, I call them vectors, forces with magnitude and direction that very often they go in opposite directions and you don't know which one will win. But, you know, for example, we're, we are working with a lot with the chemistry industry. So there's a very strong anti-chemistry, anti-plastic vector happening now because we suddenly realize how we are ruining the world we're living in and how we're ruining our own health. And if we don't take care of our own health, nobody will. But there's also a very pro-plastic, pro-chemistry vector happening now because I always like to say of my partner, my wife, who in regular life, she likes to clean the house with organic rose petals and now she's pouring uh, Clorox like crazy because what you really care about is give me any chemical that can protect me from the virus, okay? So what does the chemical industry do? Does it assume an anti-chemistry trend or does it assume a pro-chemistry trend? So our answer is, strangely enough, assume both. Both vectors will be there. Now let's see the mental flexibility that allows me to live with both vectors and not know what's going to happen. And it's actually a beautiful message because if we're really sincere, before COVID, we also didn't know what would happen. We were making these Excel prognostics and these strategic plans for five and eight years, but we didn't really know at all what was going to happen. But now the mask has been taken away. Nobody can even claim that they know what's going to happen, which is a big advantage if you think about innovation and mental flexibility. I see that. And and what I like about the document that you work on um, is exactly that there is not going to be... There are two views of the world right now. So there are all two kinds of people, those that think that this changes absolutely everything and those that think that this is a bump on the road and at certain sooner or later things will be exactly the same and then what you were claiming is like is not is is neither one neither the other is a mixture is a combination of both of those some things will remain the same yes. some things will change mm-hmm. some dramatically some not and that makes sense but it's also true that we see on the day to day these two kind of uh, of views are colliding you know um yes i think that those that we are more i don't know if into innovation but that we like the new we like to think that there is plenty of opportunities and so many things are going to change and there are going to so many opportunities there but then you are also working in a world where you're living with people which they are so hoping that nothing changes and and they are sure. resisting also to change and then that represents sure. at the end some sort of a collision between these kind of views yeah and i don't know if you remember but in the document i write never underestimate the power of people's will to not change to embrace the status quo it's awesome but what i'm saying it's not going to be a compromise and it's not like those who say 100 will change and those who say zero well in the truth 50 will change no there will be a very confusing mix of dramatic changes and surprising places where things will not change you, you understand it's really a very strange thing to, to understand. For example, one of the things that won't change is the structure of people's brains and the evolutionary stuff that's happened, you know, the fast and slow brain and reptile and blah, blah, blah. That won't change because of COVID unless the virus will somehow enter and, and manipulate ourselves. But I don't think that's happening so much right now. But so how do unchanged brains will deal with changed situation or changed sociology. And so I think that it's really fascinating. No matter what anyone tells you, there are amazing opportunities. I'm not saying they will all be realized, and I'm not saying they will realize necessarily where I want them to be realized, even sociologically, but something will happen differently. I would like, we are have five more minutes um definitely not enough to cover everything i was planning to cover especially about entrepreneurship and about israel and i think 
that's also good because, uh, as I was mentioning before, Israel is going to be our guest country on IQS uh, Tech Fest uh, at the 20th and 21st of uh, January. Um, We're going to run an, an online event. And actually, it's great because we can put a lot of emphasis. Uh, we are counting on Amnon taking part on that. We're looking for the precise format to do this. So we can talk a lot about that. But we have quite a lot of questions uh, about this. So even if it's very... Um, briefly sure. so Anais is saying why is Israel so important in entrepreneurship and what is the difference with Spain for instance so can you give okay. us uh, very briefly an explanation of, of why did Israel become actually the the startup nation that it is now yeah so I'll say very briefly first of all as you said here is a it's all of this is a teaser so people will, will attend in January 21st and 22nd because there's really a lot to say about it. There's also the book. There's a book called Startup Nation, which made this fam uh, kind of phrase famous. And actually, it's it's a good book. Of course, when you read a book about your own country, you see some of it is myth and mythology, but still it's a good book. And I think it gives you some really good arguments has to do with immigration from the former Soviet Union. By the way, that's how the treaty system came to Israel. Has to do with some army structures. Has to do, by the way, and I say to all the neoliberals out there, without the Israeli government, nothing would have happened. The first venture capital was set up by Shimon Peres, our then prime minister, a really wise person. Government pushed all of the initial high-tech uh, uh, development in Israel. So forget, I think, all, uh, on the national level without the government crucial role and of course there's a lot of cultural element to it and if you talk about israel versus spain so i i know spain pretty well because i've, I've um, i that's where i met my wife to be um, and it was also always very striking the difference in culture of course spain is also not monolithic as you know there are different parts of spain and different uh, but you can see that um, a lot of what happens in culturally, mentally in Spain is the opposite of Israel. The, the tendency to to find different... I, I go around the world a lot because of the work and I have the, the waiters, the waiters index of innovation. What happens to a waiter in a restaurant if you ask for something that's not exactly in the menu or something about where you sit? And, so you see how a waiter reacts to you and of course in uh, in spain it's very difficult to ask the waiter for something that's not in the menu and in israel it's kind of really a, you start a conversation and maybe he brings in the chef and then he's your cousin and then it, so that's definitely part of it but i think we bring very often our clients to israel to find new technologies and startups and also to to experience this startup nation. I think it's very important that other countries shouldn't try to be Israel. First of all, because you can't be what you're not. And second, because we're so lousy in so many things in Israel that it's, you know, and Spain is so good in many things and so, so many other countries are so good. So what we try to do is try to pick out those elements of the Israeli culture that you can learn from maybe sometimes even imitate, but more find the analogies in your culture. So for example, when we started working in Singapore, we told them, you're disciplined, so let's focus on the disciplined aspects of being innovative, which in SIT, by the way, is we believe very much in structure. So whatever your culture is, you can learn from the Israeli experience, you can learn good things, you know, uh, what we did well or what we're doing well in Israel, and you can learn what we're not doing so well and how you can complement, for example, or how you can partner with an Israeli company and complement what you do well and the Israelis don't know how to do. So it's a very complex, I think it's a fascinating subject, but not like, wow, Israel, you're so great and let's copy what you're doing. No, but there's a lot, yes, that you can learn and, and adapt to your culture and environment. 
Actually, I'm going to go a couple of minutes beyond our planned time because sure. you mentioned the government, the role of government. And, and of course, it's very clear in the case of Israel, it plays a, a, a huge role. Um, what we see lately in Spain, for instance, is that we realize that because of the COVID pandemic, we have an economy, well, like we didn't realize before, we have an economy that heavily um, uh, is based on services and not so much on Tourism. added value manufacturing industry or industrial sector. So we have lots of um, opinion pieces and lots of articles and discussion about we need to reinforce um, the, the industrial strategy of our country. We want to reinforce the role of industry. And, and the problem that I have about that, I think it's great, but it's always asking for a top-down approach. It's always asking for the first one to move, to make a move should be the government. They should be the one setting up the rules of the game. And, and that should be a, a state-based kind of decision. And yes. And actually, I'm always wondering, like, okay, yeah, that will be awesome, but so far it's not happening. So the question will be, what can, what can we do? society and what can um, sure. uh, private organizations and institutions do sure. in order to go towards that direction? So I'm, I'm taking the opportunity of having you here to bring this up. Sure. So if it wouldn't be because of the government, how how do you think that the, the, the private sure. uh, organizations and civil society can can make moves towards uh, improving sure. that situation? So I think it's a really important question because especially today, governments around the world are so shitty, pardon the expression, that it's really sad to think that you need to wait for governments to do stuff for you. So I, but I say double. First of all, today, learning from the Israel experience and also th things I see in many other places, there's a lot that can be done privately and the combination of NGO and the private sector and the fourth sector, as we said, the, uh, the social businesses. So I want to mention an example we're deeply involved in because I think it's really interesting. Uh, in Israel, for about three and a half years ago, some philanthropic people from an, formed an NGO trying to boost the Israeli health tech community. They said, Israel is a world power in cyber tech, and cyber tech is a $100 billion industry in the world, so that's huge revenue for the country. But health tech is a $3.5 trillion industry, so imagine if we can get to a leadership position there. And they identified that cyber is totally dependent on guys and ladies coming out from the army with all the super cyber units in the army you know, and at night in your, you're doing that and you're inventing your startup. And one week after you finish the army, you have your startup and you have funding from your friends from two years ago who already sold their startup for $200 million and they invest $2 million in your startup. So it's all created by the army as a side effect of the importance of cyber for the security of the country. So I said, so let's create the analogy, an analogical ecosystem for health tech. And they came to us to help design this program. And, and since then, we're part of it and we facilitate all this program. And, and we gave them the tagline, which was from ecosystem to ecosystem. And what we said is, how do we take all these players in the ecosystem? So we said, managers of VCs, managers of, uh, of um, medic medicine schools, managers of hospitals, managers in the big uh, corporate, multinational pharma and other corporates, um, all the players in the ecosystem of health, and we brought them together and we created a whole system and uh, I won't go into the details. So this was a pure, it started as a purely NGO philanthropic idea, but we managed to bring all the sectors together and what, and the key sector of government. So we reached out to the government. And one week before the launch of the first cohort, the government pulled out its people. They said there's ethically a problem that government officials will sit with business people, etc. So we ran two cohorts without the government, one year each. And then the government saw the power of it, the huge potential, and they managed to find a way. So our third cohort already had people from the government. 
And through our work, this that started from an NGO and had the business sector, we really managed to influence the government so much so that the government passed a bill in Parliament that is the support for the health tech industry as a major force in the Israeli economy. And it all started from this philanthropic. So I say, agree 100%, don't wait for the government to initiate. Government is very bad at initiatives, but don't disregard the government. Initiate processes that can then pull in the government because there's no comparison. Once the government comes in with its resources and its capabilities, everything you know increases dramatically. The potential is, is much bigger. But don't wait for the government to initiate it. That's the learning that, that we had. And we, it took us two years to bring the government. When they got on board, wow, suddenly acceleration of everything, much more resources, much more access to those. For example, we needed to influence. There isn't an Israeli FDA. We needed to influence how, what kind of FDA type of activity will happen in Israel because that's a bottleneck for Israeli companies in developing new stuff in health tech. So without the government, we, you can't do anything. But what we did was we set up a team, a think tank, we published papers, we reached out, we made recommendations until slowly we brought them into the fold also. So initiated by combination of NGOs and, and the business sector, but reach out to the government. I That's think this is a very powerful message to, to finish with our conversation today. And, and as we were saying, this is a teaser for what's coming on IQS Tech Fest this year. Also, known, I think that you brought lots of uh, very interesting and relevant and meaningful uh, insights. Is there a place we can go if we want to learn more about the SIT sure. methodology and also about your way of thinking? Because I think I'm sure it's triggering the minds of many people. Sure. So first of all, we have a website. It's SIT site, sitsite.com. So it's SIT, SITE.com. We wanted it to be sit.com, but it was taken by a sitcom company. So we invented sitsite.com. And we, you'll see there, we published extensively because we started from academia. We published in many academic journals and we published several books. I think the best, most complete book is one we published a few years ago in the U.S., but it's in 14 languages, including Spanish, by a Spanish publisher, and it's called Innovating Inside the Box. So we didn't have time to talk about today about the concept of inside the box, but generally in within our structural thinking, we call it Innovating Inside the Box. And so you can find a lot of information about there, us there, and of course, reach out to us or to me. And thank you very much, Oriol, for this opportunity and uh, to talk about interesting things, maybe expose some audience to it. Thank you. No, thank you. It was really interesting, really meaningful. So thank you very much for the conversation today. And actually, with that, we're going to bring it uh, to a close. Um, so I would like to thank Amnon for his uh, contribution today. Also, I would like to thank the IQS Tech Factory and Barter teams for making this event possible. To you, thanks for joining us and see you very soon.